New Thinking Allowed, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is working on what has decayed. My guest is Dr. Betty Kovacs. She is a specialist in the theory of symbolic and mythic language. She's served for many years on the board of directors of the Jung Society of Claremont, California, and she's currently on the academic advisory board of the Forever Family Foundation. She is the author of The Miracle of Death, There Is Nothing But Life, and also Merchants of Light, The Consciousness That Is Changing the World. This is my second interview with Dr. Kovacs. I highly recommend that you watch the first interview before this one. It will really help you, I think. And I'm linking to it now. You can click on the hot link in the upper right-hand corner of your screen for our interview on the inversion of our true myths. And now, I'll switch over to the internet video for our discussion on working on what has decayed. Hello, Betty. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. Thank you, Jeff. We had a previous conversation on the inversion of our true myths. And, and I remember from that conversation, I brought up the analogy of uh, the game of hide and seek. Uh, it seems we're always playing hide-and-seek with ourselves in terms of discovering our soul. And, and you point out throughout history, it seems every time there is a flowering of self-discovery and, and culture seems very soulful, it seems as if we lose it. Yes, yes, we do. It seems that now we've gone into permanent hiding and forgotten that there's anything to seek. Well, you point out, having uh, been born before the end of the Second World War, I was born right after the end in 1946, but you you point out as, as a five-year-old child, you remember when the war began, and, and you describe it, I think rightfully so, as, as a low point in, in the entire history of humanity. Yes. Certainly in my life, it was, although when it happened, I, uh, my brother and I had come in from play to listen to Gene Autry on the radio, and it, it, that program was uh, interrupted to announce uh, the war, the bombing on Pearl Harbor. Of course, I had no idea what that meant, but it really started my mind questioning and trying to figure out what is war and why do, why do people fight? And what concerned me most and startled me most is that it was the adults who were fighting. Uh, but it was certainly major. Of course, we've had so many wars since then that it's become a permanent state. I think of it as a as a low point. So many millions of people died in in so many different countries, and uh, in particular, uh, innocent civilians who were deliberately gassed to death in gas chambers and uh, and uh, and the like. It's hard to imagine a, a, a worse circumstance in all of human history. Although I know there have been many bad ones. There have been many bad ones, and we think of the Great War, World War One. how many people died and suffered. But yes, World War II 
was beyond our ability to understand. And when the war was over and we all discovered more of what was really going on in Germany and, and in Europe, uh, we, we couldn't even quite conceive of it. We couldn't understand how the human being could do such a thing. And I think in every stage of my study as an adult, it was always to try to understand that war. What happened? What happened that this could actually take place? What happened to the human psyche? It seems to me, even though there have been many wonderful advances, especially in technology uh, since that time, and uh, I think in my life, I've grown up under peaceful and prosperous circumstances for the most part. We're, we're still living in the shadow of uh, terrible evil that uh, was created by uh, humans. And, and you describe that as kind of a, a lack of soul. And you point out, for example, Carl Jung's great book, I think, written in the aftermath of the war, Modern Man in Search of a Soul. Yes. Yes. And uh, when I saw that book in uh, the library of a young man I was dating, who was a minister, he had just studied at Andover Newton. And I, I saw that title, Modern Man in Search of a Soul. I knew that's what I needed to read. I was searching for that. I knew we had lost something very, very important. You've de dedicated your life to a uh, study of symbolism and, and myths uh, as kind of an antidote, as a way of rediscovering our soul through an appreciation of symbolic language. That is definitely true. And the only means I had in the beginning uh, was the dream, my own dreams. And I was guided, I am very grateful to say, by Carl Jung. When, In fact, I discovered him through this very same young man who was a minister. Uh, I was at a party one night at their house, his, his new home for the church. And here were all of these young men and women who were from Andover Newton. And they were talking about Carl Jung and physics and, and spirit and soul. And I certainly just kept quiet <laughs> and listened. And afterwards, just when we went into his library and I saw modern men in search of a soul. So, uh, yes, I just, I, I knew that there was something going on that perhaps had meaning that would, would fill my heart. And so from that time on, I was looking at reading Carl Jung, didn't understand him in the beginning, but I kept right on reading. And then I uh, taught, I formed the course at this college where I worked uh, in fairy tale and myth and symbolic language. And I taught it for years. And this was the time of the counterculture. And uh, the young people in my class were so enthralled and interested and committed to learning uh, these possibilities as well. And uh, I still hold them in my heart because we really entered that adventure together. Symbolism and, and myth to, to many people, especially from the materialist point of view, they view it as imaginary. And you describe it in a different way. You describe it, I think, maybe the, the best word I could use, if I had to use one word, would be imaginal, which is different from imaginary. <laughs> yes, yes. And the Sufis try to make that clear as well. Uh, but yes, there, 
there are symbols that arise out of the human psyche. And these symbols are put into context by the psyche. That is, they are organized by the principles of the human psyche. And they always guide us and help us to achieve that heart consciousness or soul consciousness. Now, we titled this particular interview, Working on What Has Decayed. And I gather that that phrase occurred to you because of a, a series of visionary experiences that you had and how important it is for us to uh, not ignore the decay. And uh, you, you even put it more strongly, the, the shit, the, that, the unclaimed <laughs> shit that we have left behind. Yes, I think that in our lives and in our culture and throughout the planet, uh, we haven't known, we have lost the ability to even think in terms of soul. We didn't know what we had lost. We were just at loose ends. And so on a daily basis, we didn't know how each day to think through the day and see what we had done and claim Take responsibility for the things that perhaps were not helpful to our own growth and development or to the growth and development of those around us. And we had to, we had to find a way of understanding the world and looking at the world that could help us to know that if we take responsibility, that we can prevent, uh, this terrible overflow, you might say, of the unclaimed shit so that the world does not destroy itself or so that we don't destroy the world. You point out uh, in a series of uh, visions uh, the image of the jackal, the, I guess the ancient Egyptian jackal god Anubis, who uh, seems to be uh, the the deity whose whose job is to take that decay and transform it. Yes, the Egyptians were incredibly uh, brilliant symbologists, and the jackal serves a particular function. Of course, Anubis, the god Anubis, has many functions. The jackal is one. And when I, I had a dream in which I was in the UK at the Ashmolean Museum, and I was, I walked into the museum and I saw the jackal sitting there, and he was in a deep state of uh, meditation, a trance state. And so I thought, well, I'll just go about my business and look at the artifacts. And then he came over to me. And uh, when I was looking at the artifacts, he said, I can give you that knowledge without the artifacts. I can teach you all of that. And I looked at him and I said, who are you? And he just it said, the void, the all. And that was the first experience with him. And I thought, well, I need to understand the jackal better. Uh, and so I started uh, looking up information about the jackal. And then I realized that, yes, the jackal eats decayed food. And within his own body, he transforms it into new life. And I knew that that was a message coming from him, that that is exactly what I needed to do and that we on the earth needed to do. So he became a powerful symbol on that level, but he appeared in other ways as well. And I gather in Jungian psychology and uh, other variations of depth 
psychology. Yeah, the idea of, of working on what is decayed, of uh, reclaiming uh, or, or taking ownership of our own shit, as, as you put it at one point in your book, uh, is associated with what is sometimes called shadow work. Yes, yes, that's a, it certainly is. And it's, it's so interesting, you know, that so often people will finally feel like they're really going to apologize for something, but it's always, well, if I had anything to do with that, or if I, you know, it's, it's taking a step toward responsibility, but not quite arriving there. So Jung was, was very strong in helping us to take the steps to completely see and accept responsibility for what we had done, that that is the great step toward growth. And I found in my own visions um, a little bit before uh, our son died and afterwards that I actually was very happy to see the shadow self because right there I knew what I could do to improve. Uh, it, it's so important to pull that up out of the unconscious and know what we're doing and not fool ourselves. And I think as a culture, we've often fooled ourselves. For years, we've talked about how we were the great shining city on the hill and there was no other country. We were exceptional. Uh, I'm sure we were in many ways and are, but it didn't allow us to really look deeply into who we are, what we have done, what kind of responsibility is necessary here, and how can we transform ourselves for our sakes and the world. And my sense of things, Betty, is that uh, the human psyche is practically infinite in, in the sense that it encompasses uh, the greatest good and, uh, and the worst evil. It all is there within the psyche and, and the potential for all of that. And uh, sometimes you hear uh, people talk about a, a spiritual war, that uh, good and evil are fighting each other for the soul of, of man. Uh, and we have to side with the good against the evil. And it seems to me that when we do that, we're denying half of our own being. When we deny the evil? Yes. When, when we treat the evil as if it's something outside of ourselves. Yes, yes. Oh, yes. I agree completely. It's, um, yes, that's a big problem. And it has been for centuries, and it is now. It goes back to those great polarities that you were talking about last time, is that in the world of time and space, we live in the world of opposing principles. And our tendency is to simply get rid of the principle that we're not interested in. Uh, there is an old Mayan saying that... Uh, Polarity is the loom on which reality is strung. So we can't cut the loom in half and throw away what we think is evil. We have to do business with it. And in order to do business with it, we first of all have to recognize the darkness in our own psyche. And as we do that, we can look at what we think of as the darkness in others uh, in our culture and begin to try to understand what it really means for that person. What is deeper in that person? What are, what are the intricate details that is going on with the opposite? And when we do that, we can begin to meet. Rather than try to kill each other, we can actually try 
to see what in the other we need to integrate. And in that way, as Goethe said so well, the two come together and out of the two coming together, a third, a completely unanticipated other. It won't be like the good side that we think we're on or the bad side. Something else can happen out of that coming together of opposites and not simply dismissing them as, as the evil force. Now, since you mentioned Goethe, uh, I'd like to talk about the, the legend of Faust, uh, his, his great uh, play. And I know it goes even, it's much older than Goethe. Marlowe wrote a play uh, about Faust as well, but it seems to me it's a, a very important symbolic uh, story about, about the idea of selling one's soul. It has to do with the loss of soul and the recovery of soul. Yes, that is such a profound uh, work from Goethe. I taught part one for a while in college, and then I decided, probably foolishly, <laughs> that I was going to teach part two. Very, very difficult, very complex and multilayered, but certainly Faust was a typical university professor, typical right-brained person who was very self-centered and very unconscious of his own darkness. Now, did, did you mean right brain or left brain? I often associate the left brain with the intellect and the right brain with the artistic mentality. Did I say? You said he was right-brained. I think you meant left-brained. Oh, yes, I did. <laughs> yeah, how easy it is to misspeak. Yes, he was very much associated with rationality and the the left brain, certainly. And the feminine, of course, is very much associated with the right brain. But he was a person who had no concept of who he was. And throughout part two, he has to go through experience after experience. Uh, and he still remains unconscious in many ways. He's always trying to achieve something that would fulfill him. And he does all kinds of things. He's such a modern man, you might say. And it, uh, he gets involved with a young, very innocent girl and she becomes pregnant. He has no sense of responsibility about anything. But it is finally through his ability to feel that he begins to wake up. And that is his big step toward recovering soul, the heart, the ability to feel. And that is his salvation, which is also ours to, to feel the Egyptians at the high stage of uh, the visionary and mystic state. They understood very well that culture cannot develop, nor can we as human beings. We cannot develop if we don't achieve that openness of the heart and allow ourselves to feel. We certainly have in our own culture the experience of having all kinds of facts all kinds of rational left brain knowledge. And yet we can't feel those ideas. We like them. We try to uh, live by them. But the moment trouble comes, we often can't live up to them. Or we can't even understand certain ideas, I think, without feeling. So that was really one of Goethe's major messages in, in Faust, and that as he opens up to the heart, he opens up to the eternal feminine, which is soul, wisdom, that ability to feel through the heart and live through the heart. 
Now, one of the important characters in the story of Faust is Mephistopheles, uh, who, whom you describe really as uh, the shadow side of uh, Faust's own personality. Exactly. And it takes Faust a long time <laughs> to ever come into consciousness that Mephistopheles is himself. It just was... And we do that. If we look at our culture today, we see these Mephistophelian tendencies, but we see them in other. And it's so hard to see that these tendencies are in ourselves. So when Faust begins to see that, it was so devastating to realize that this murderous, cruel, unfeeling tendency was in fact himself. And that, of course, once he could do that, then he could truly, he could truly evolve. You point out that you've studied Freud and as, as well as Jung in, in your education. And, uh, the Freudian subconscious, uh, to me, it's, it's all about, uh, hiding from ourselves the things that we don't want to see. Yes, yes. Uh, I, I was not impressed with Freud when I read him as a young person, although I could see that he had given so much uh, and accomplished so much. I needed Jung, <laughs> who was who was deeply interested in questions that Freud did not want Jung to ask, and he himself did not want to deal with. He wanted to hide from them. And Jung had a, a great shadow himself that he needed to look at, but he spent his life trying to do that, I think. And he also spent his life on research of our uh, past cultures. What can they tell us about the development of the psyche? How do we do this? And so I felt that he gave a great contribution uh, to our culture by helping us to go inward and find our Mephistopheles and start to do dialogue with him or her. <laughs> In your book, Merchants of Light, you point out uh, over and over and over again, there are these waves of Enlightenment culture, and uh, then they get uh, suppressed, they get squashed. And I'm under the impression that each time that happens, it's because uh, another uh, movement takes place. Uh, and, and that movement is always uh, sort of a grasping for power. Some group of people want power and they find that they can achieve power over others by suppressing uh, one or another form of enlightened thinking. Yes, I think that when we haven't achieved that ability to look at our shadow and we haven't achieved the ability to bring forth who we are, our own individual gift, that we don't find it within, so we grab it and snatch it in every way we can from without. And I think, you know, so many in the West talk about the ego, you know, that we have to get rid of ego. I never felt we have to get rid of ego. I think that the ego is a beautiful, has a beautiful function that if we go inward and achieve an awareness of our shadow and allow our heart consciousness to develop, if we do that, we do not need power outside ourselves. But I think when we fail in that, uh, as an individual or as a culture, as a group, then we open ourselves to want to grab power because that's what fulfills us. If we can't find our own 
inner power, we must have it in the outer world. And so these cultures developed and many were successful, uh, did very well in the world, you might say. But in Europe, it was basically the Roman church, uh, along with the Habsburg uh, dynasty that were able to, they definitely wanted power, that they were able to wipe out any, any attempt to experience what was not part of the church doctrine. Uh, we didn't even know for years that we had a shamanic, mystic, uh, scientific culture. Uh, we thought that had only been in the East and we didn't have anything. Well, no, we did develop it. I mean, there was beginnings in the cave cultures and certainly in the megalithic cultures and then in uh, Sumeria and then Egypt and the first temple tradition and then in the pre-Socratic tradition in Anatolia, the Greek uh, uh, pre-Socratic philosophers who really gave to Plato this incredible knowledge which he somewhat changed and the later followers of him did make it into just a more rational um, tradition but it wasn't that. They they practice samadhi. These pre-Socratic philosophers would go into a mystic trance state and out of that state of consciousness, which they often remained in for hours, they brought forth all of the disciplines that we identify with the Western world. So really, and Peter Kingsley talks about this so, so beautifully, that the Western world has its deep roots in the pre-Socratic philosophers who were practicing samadhi. But that, of course, was stopped in the West, but it was not stopped in the East, and it continued. So, yes, there were there were successes, and many of them were forgotten or lost until the 20th century. But uh, it was those who who needed power, who made it impossible um, to exist. It's it's almost impossible, even though I have studied it again and again, of what damage and and violence that the Roman Church committed uh, in order to maintain its power. Uh, they here here was an institution that took over the teachings of a mystic Jesus, but they inverted that particular story from Jesus' teaching was that we should go in and find the Christ within. Not to follow the Christ, but to become the Christ. That is to achieve heart Christ consciousness. Excuse me, consciousness. But the church shifted that and said that we were to follow the Christ, to worship the Christ. So they were saying we are not to seek Christ consciousness within us, but to worship it in someone who had achieved it. And that's devastating for our own development. So uh, that did happen again and again. Each time this would rise to the surface and every creative period had its roots in that shaman mystic tradition. And each time it would rise and develop to some degree, it was shut down by the church. And in the case of the Albigensians in southern France, they were slaughtered uh, over a period of years through the early Crusades. They were literally slaughtered by the thousands. This early, yeah, period of, of Christianity has now been revealed to us through such things as the apocryphal texts and the Nag Hammadi library. 
Yes, it was a wonderful thing that uh, these texts with the church would not accept into the canon or the Bible because they were actually about going inward and finding the Christ within. And the Nagamadi texts were such texts, and around 400 AD, they were buried so that they would not be destroyed, and they were found right after the war, as were the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, the old Jewish texts, mystic texts, uh, the Jewish mystics who did not want to go along with the Second Temple tradition. So here we found the Nagamadi Nagamadi text, and we find a very different uh, Jesus, and one who is saying, when you drink from my mouth, you and I are one, and if you will bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you, but if you do not bring forth what is within you, it will destroy you. And I often look at that saying and think, this is where we are. You know, if we can't bring that forth, then it will blow up in us. When we think of uh, that which we can't bring forth within us, uh, in order to let the light shine, we have to acknowledge the darkness within us. Absolutely. Yes, out of the darkness comes the light. <laughs> As Jung says, you can't become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by bringing the darkness forward, by making the darkness light. And, and that frightens a lot of people. Yes, because the, one of the big problems is that religion should be helping us to connect, as its word means, to connect. We should have, if we're going to have helpers, we need, or institutions, they should be focused on teaching us how to bring forth what is within us. And this would mean also, in more modern terms, it would mean integrating all of the brain components within the heart. Because we now know, as the ancients knew, our ancestors knew, that the Heart is the center. We have to be connected to the heart or we cannot evolve. We cannot. That is part of the blueprint that the brain had to be connected to its fifth brain component, the heart, because the heart gives more information to the brain than the brain gives to the heart. It starts beating before the brain starts developing. And it's a hundred times stronger in its magnetic field and on and on and on. And when we can pull these uh, brain components into the heart, then all sorts of frequencies begin to take place within the heart and the brain. The ancients wouldn't have put it in that way, but they knew that they had to be connected to the heart. But we need all of the focus on how we do that. How does a human being develop? How do we entrain the brain with the heart? Because once we do that, our development is easier there's uh heart math has done so much scientific research with the heart and other brain components that when they have worked with people they see that uh, we are less violent i mean we're less uh, angry uh, that we have more benevolent feelings that something very very different happens to the way we think and feel once we have entrained the heart well, this is, it's as though we have this incredible biological gift of being human in the human body. And we have the ability to entrain and uh, um, integrate all of the brain components with the heart. And then what our job is, is to, and this was in the symbolism of the tree that we talked about, is how do we 
then connect to these powerful energies in the earth. There is a, you might say, a technology that we need to know as human beings. Once we can do the integrating of the brain and the heart, then we need to know how to allow these deep, powerful earth energies to rise through us and then rise to the sky and connect us with the cosmos. The megalithic period knew that we were the mediators of these earth energies and the cosmic energies, which we could do if the brain was connected to the heart, or they wouldn't have put it in those terms. So there were powerful rituals, you might say, to help us do that. I think we cannot have a civilization until we know that civilized people learn how this great body works and how to work with it, how to develop develop it. I feel like sometimes that it's like getting into a car, a modern car with all these buttons and switches, and we can drive the car, but we might never know what all of those other buttons could do for us. And that's true with the human being. So a true civilization would really work with developing this integrated heart brain and then working with the energies of the earth and the cosmic energies. And we said last time that archetypal image of the tree is precisely that. If we, um, if we root ourselves like the tree and have our branches going up to the sky and we take in that essence that comes as a result, then we have a higher consciousness. And I started last time to mention about the deeper roots of that than in Samaria. I think those roots go back to the megalithic period. When we look at those tall menhirs, it's that stone, the standing stone that is rooted in the earth and reaches to the sky. And that could have been 8,000 BCE, even far older than uh, Sumeria and the later Egyptian tree symbolism. And uh, in fact, we now know that from Gebekli Tepe, which was maybe 8,000 years older than Sumeria, that they had what is called the sky pole, I believe, or not they call, we called it. But uh, shamans around the world, of course, that started around 40,000 BCE. And we know, I don't know exactly when they started doing that, but probably very early, is that when they rooted themselves through ritual in the earth energies, then they climbed the pole, that is the sacred tree of life that was rooted in the earth and reached to the sky when they had achieved that connection of those energies, that higher state of Consciousness, And we know that in Gebekli Tepe, now the oldest civilization we know about, that um, there were many sky poles there. It was almost as though they were wanting to stabilize the earth so that another catastrophe wouldn't happen. But uh, this is a kind of energy and knowledge that many groups of our ancestors knew. And I think we have to make it our primary purpose to understand how this organism functions. And what are the buttons that we need to push in order to have full functioning of it? One of the points you make is, is that this ancient knowledge gets recovered from time to time. And there are uh, various renaissances. One of them uh, we've kind of hinted at when we talked about Goethe, uh, the, the Romantic movement uh, yes. was, was such a time. But it strikes me 
Betty, that when these flowerings of culture occur, uh, they're also very vulnerable. Uh, they don't seem to be able to withstand, uh, you know, what the, the seekers of power who, who try to uh, suppress them. So after you had Goethe and the, and the German romantics, it wasn't too long before uh, you had the Nazis and Hitler taking over Germany. You know, I think about that a lot. Is it that we, our darker side was so much more powerful that that inability to look at our darkness and that inability to do the work to integrate the feeling, the love, the heart consciousness, was that just so strong that there would be those of us who could achieve it, but we couldn't hold on in terms of the whole group. So it's a uh, after the church took over about 400 AD, uh, it was almost 700 years before the first reawakening of that ancient tradition. And it, I think it just, I was so amazed to learn what I learned about Chartres. At Chartres, we can actually see in the architecture, in the teachings, in the wisdom school of 1000, which was all about achieving Christ consciousness, that here we have true Christianity, like the phoenix rising up in a Christian cathedral. It was certainly uh, the rebirth of the secret tradition that Jesus taught and uh, what is called today contemplative or esoteric or uh, Christianity. And it just incredibly beautiful. And then that was put down after a while. Uh, for instance, the, the myth of the grail seeking heart and soul and love, uh, was stopped for 50 years. Those tales were written. And after that, immediately stopped. And then there was the Italian Renaissance and his awakening of all of our potential and an attempt to bring together these ancient traditions, but a failure. And then came the Rosicrucian we talked about last time from 1600 to 1620, although it was, it was fed by all of these traditions of the past from the Egyptian all the way through. And then, of course, came the German period, the Romantic period of, and actually it's kind of interesting that uh, when Goethe was at the university studying law, which he hated, and he just became sick at heart and went home, his mother sensed what was going on with him. And she brought a friend of hers, Fräulein von Klettenberg, I believe it was, who was a pietist. Well, it's so interesting because pietism is what the whole Rosicrucian movement became when it was put down by the church. So it was still alive in Germany. And Goethe then became an alchemist. So it's interesting how these things happen. But uh, we've certainly suffered from the loss of our, our best attempts to become whole and have to start over again. But we do have these ancient traditions to rely on. The human psyche is so large that that none of these movements, the Romantic movement, the Rosicrucian movement, uh, the ancient mystic uh, shaman scientists, uh, none of those movements are as large as the human soul. And, and so that eventually something else has to come. And even though they seem dark and violent and, and suppressive, uh, usually uh, they are instrumental in, in another awakening. 
awakening of sorts that, that follows after them. So, uh, maybe I hate to say this because I'm a nonviolent person myself, but, uh, something good often comes out of these dark periods. <laughs> That's exactly what Goethe said, <laughs> that there, there are levels of consciousness we might not have achieved. Um, that's, that's, I think if we go back to what we started out with, with the polarities, why is that dark part of the polarity so powerful and all that we try to do on the other side, not quite able to hold its own? I think that maybe it means that each of us has more work to do with this dark polarity in understanding what happens to the soul, what happens to the heart, when it isn't able to feel and know and experience itself. What is it that we need to understand that we don't? You know, when you think of, of World War II and all that happened, we, it's just so hard to understand. And I think it means we can't just dismiss, well, they're this particular group and, and think we're good. I, I actually had that visionary experience because I had always read history from the victim's perspective and looking at the perpetrator of wondering how I wasn't understanding the perpetrator. And within my own visions, my own soul made it very clear that I had to understand history from the perspective of the perpetrator. Otherwise, I couldn't, I couldn't know history. Who did I think I was? You know, I only had one side of understanding it. And because we are perpetrators as well. And to understand that is so important. I think it's very difficult, uh, for people to, Except that uh, we have within ourselves a, a connection. Uh, one might even say at the quantum level that uh, we are entangled with, uh, you know, the worst crimes ever committed in the history of humanity. Uh, uh, the, you know, working on what has decayed uh, requires us to honestly acknowledge that, I think. Well, that is the point isn't it? And you've made it very well, is that working on what has decayed means working, first of all, and continuously with what is decayed within us, within me. That's where all work begins. And that, as you've said, is, is hard because we're blind very often. And it's hard to accept, you know, could I have been a Nazi? You know, it's a, could I have been? And you could go on. And when you begin to get inside that, it does change you. Betty Kovacs, this has been a very profound discussion and very heartfelt. Thank you so much for sharing your, your wisdom and your struggles and, and your thoughts with me and with our viewers. And uh, I'm very happy to say that uh, we'll be doing more interviews because I think this is one of the very most important uh, explorations uh, that people can have. Yes, it's something we really need today in this kind of extraordinary crisis that we brought upon ourselves, you might say. This is the work we need to do. Thank you so much for being with me, Betty. Oh, thank you, Jeff. Thank you very much.
And for those of you watching, thank you for being with us.